0: Hey everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Greetings one and all, Mick Murray here with Drew Stedman. Welcome to the Ideology podcast. And as always, we are grateful for your ongoing listenership. Again, you can reach us at ideologypc at gmail.com. We love hearing from you guys, and it's helpful to receive just your thoughts, feedback, suggestions. If there are topics that we haven't covered that would be helpful for us to take a look at, uh, that's great for us to know. And uh, we're, we're coming to you today back in our recording studio out of the nursing mother's room, gratefully. Uh, but both of us are exceedingly sore at feeling our age, maybe, or at least I'm, I'm turning 40 this year. Drew, are you, are you 40? I'm turning 40 this year, too. And uh, we were at a staff retreat, and both of us faced off in a, in a game where we had to race for a cone in order to answer questions about state capitals. And uh, I think we're, like, in my mind, I'm still 22. And uh, but my body is protesting, and uh, there were several times at this retreat that I I tried to do something, but my mind was out ahead of my body, and uh, actually, I gave several staffers an indelible image of an incredibly uncoordinated attempt at catching a ball in kickball out in the left field, but nevertheless, here we are, sore and all, and uh, Drew, what are, we, what are we talking about today?
1: Well, before we talk about our topic, I think it's worth noting that Mick won the state capital race by one point, so... Congratulations. Um, you. You'll you. receive all well wishes uh, from your loyal following of fans. I did have a funny time trying to explain to my children why I was sore that I was racing to name the state capitals. And they were both confused and impressed, which is kind of how I felt about myself as well.
0: To be completely honest, not only am I sore, but I think I broke a toe. <laughs> and uh, my on my right foot, my left ankle is is uh, swollen and grotesque. So my kids are also a bit confused As to why I would sacrifice my body for something so inane as a state capitals test. But Mick, what is the state capital of Vermont? Vermont is Montpelier. There we go. I've actually been there. I think it's one of only two state capitals that doesn't have a McDonald's. At least that was true. Juneau in Alaska and Montpelier in Vermont. Fact check me, listeners, uh, on that one. This is why Mick is number one and I'm number two. (laughs)
1: Well, today's conversation has nothing to do with racing for state capitals, but today we are going to talk about uh, what I'm titling here, performative social justice discourse or performative justice discourse. And the topic alone is a mouthful. So uh, before I I explain it, um, let me start by introducing why we're having this conversation. And something that I have noticed is there is this very rapidly evolving lexicon of how people talk about social justice, and you see it all the time, especially if you're online. And in something like Twitter is probably the platform where you'll see this the most is these very carefully crafted statements that are put out by corporations, by individuals. But if you pay attention to it and and if you track with this over time, you'll be noticing how the language that they use is rapidly evolving. And so statements that are used in May of 2022 are very different in in what they describe from just two years ago, three years ago. And that's pretty, you know, you look at the way that language changes. It's normal for language to change over the course of decades, but for the amount and the intensity of how that language is evolving in a very short amount of time, I, I think there is some uniqueness to that. And I'm curious about stuff like this, of why is that? And what does this language represent? Who does it serve? Why is it changing so quickly? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And where this uh, rubber hits the road for me, and I don't know about your experience, Mick, is um, that as many people rightfully demonstrate a deep concern for the poor and social issues, there is this tension in the background of how do we describe it and what language do we use to describe it? And if you and I are in a room together and we're both advocating for the poor, are we able to do so? Um, Does our vocabulary support that? Does it hurt that? When somebody shows up and they're, they're saying, hey, I think we need to do something, the language that they use, and what, to, at least from my perspective, seems to be happening right now is there is both the concern for the poor that is an ever-present issue that, uh, from my perspective, God is shining a light on and encouraging the church to take seriously. But There is a second issue of the language that we use to talk about the poor that I think is a bit more complex, and I'm, um, at least for my part, ambivalent about it. And I, I've started looking at those as two separate things, and I, I think maybe in one way it all gets lumped together but i found it helpful to view the conversation is actually distinct from what we're trying to accomplish or do or care for. Uh, Mick, what's been your experience with this? Do you are you noticing the same thing?
0: Yeah, so i you know as you're talking Drew i'm thinking back on a couple of episodes that we've done over the past year. One earlier this year on concept creep and then we've talked about language games and just just the the shifting landscape when it comes to language and how how important language is, you know? I mean just if i'm if i'm going to pan way back Thinking, you know, biblically um, that God created, God spoke everything into existence. Jesus is the Word become flesh, and uh, and how powerful words are, and words have meaning. Uh, It's how we have fellowship with God. It's how we have human, uh, any kind of human economy relationships, Uh, and we've we've covered in depth just how subjective language has become, and how constantly kind of the, the landscape is shifting uh, when it comes to the words and the terminology that we use. Is, this, is that more along the lines of what you're, what you're saying, Drew?
1: Yes, absolutely. And so, I'm, you know, as I look at this, as it relates to social justice, I'm going to start with an assumption, and I recognize this is not an assumption that we should make. And my assumption is that for followers of Jesus, central to our vocation is a deep commitment to care for the poor and the marginalized in society. And I recognize that clouding this conversation is a legacy of cultural Christianity, where people were content to disregard the poor, not talk about the poor at all. So even though I'm raising some potential challenges with the way that social justice discourse is evolving, I'm thankful that it's a conversation that we're having. And that, you know, to me, the, if the alternative is to not talk about God's heart for the poor, I'd rather talk about it, even if we're talking about it in a way that leads to challenges, um, because it does keep it in front of us. However, I I have started noticing a trend that concerns me a little bit, that for many people, a concern for the poor is equated to a person's ability to master the ever-changing language of social justice. And so another way of looking at that, if somebody were going to evaluate me, rather than looking at am I demonstrating a concern for the poor with my life, the way that I interact with people, the way that I genuinely listen and approach people with humility the way that where I can, I'm showing my support and more than anything, friendship and fellowship, things like that, I have a concern that for some people, rather than looking at that, they're actually looking at how well I perform on social media and my ability to master an ever-evolving discourse about social justice. And so when they evaluate how is a person doing or how our church is doing or how is the church doing, um, it turns into How well are we able to stay on top of this shifting language and issue carefully crafted statements that rightfully demonstrate whatever the concern is at the time? So the big question that I'm wanting to ask is, does social justice discourse, and particularly the variants that we see on Twitter and in in college-level conversations, um, especially on campuses, does this discourse actually represent the real concerns of the poor? So two big disclaimers. First, I am not going to advocate politics, and in fact, I would say there is a significant part of the problem is that people often—and this kind of gets back to what you were saying earlier, uh, Mick—I think anytime we talk about the poor or race or topics like that, I found for a lot of people, they're immediately looking for me to say something that then pulls me into a political camp. And so these huge conversations that, as a Christian, are far greater and deeper than politics— are getting reduced to, did I say the right word that demonstrates my allegiance to a particular political party? And that can be on the right, and that could also be on the left. And I I just think anytime we reduce the poor to a talking point or a get out the vote campaign, that's missing the point. And yes, politics do affect the poor, and bad politics can absolutely lead to suffering. And I, I think there are some issues in our society where probably some of the better solutions are political solutions. And so I, you know, what I'm not trying to do here, and this is not the point of this episode, is to discuss um, to what extent does politics affect poverty reduction versus not? And there's a lot of schools of thought there. What I would ask, though, is let's take our political glasses off for a second, put our Christian glasses on, and say, as followers of Jesus, we're committed to serving the poor, and let's not reduce this conversation to which party we join. Second... Even though there's going to be some critique of social justice commentary, what I'm focused on is the changing language, not necessarily what's being referred to. And so, you know, what I would hate is if somebody listened to this and what they heard from this episode was that I am dismissing concerns that are raised through some of this language. I'm actually concerned about the language itself. Even as on a lot of these points, I would probably agree that the language is trying to refer to a very real problem, and there probably is some great legitimacy, I'm just not convinced that the way we're talking about it is the most helpful. Like all things, this should lead to us wrestling, learning, hopefully listening to others, changing our opinions at time, and you know, our heart is always, how do we maintain a faithful witness to Jesus and demonstrate the things that He cared about um, in our earthly lives?
0: And again, these themes should be nothing new if you're a longtime listener of this podcast. Uh, Hopefully you see the tendency that we have to try to paint both sides of, of an issue and, and take a non political stance, but try to look at these ideas that are affecting the way that we think in our culture and our society from a from a biblical, kind of orthodox Christian standpoint, but unpacking some really difficult but important uh, trends that we see in society and this this being one of them again just the the shifting landscape of how we use language and how that can obscure one of the things i hear you saying Drew is how that can obscure the actual issue at hand yeah you've talked about this in the past Drew about uh, often in the you know academic world the efforts to kind of diagnose uh, certain issues uh, or at least from a theological standpoint, to try to craft, you know, theology around like Pentecostalism, for instance, which is predominantly among the poor uh, globally. Uh, often, is not inclusive of the very members of that group that is, is ostensibly trying to help. They are not represented in crafting and forming that that idea, those ideas, that ideology. And so as as believers, since this is such in our school here in Waco, we always tell our students there are two things I see in scripture that every believer has to grapple with. One is lostness and the other is the poor, regardless of your location, vocation, stage of life. That, you know, the poor is obviously something that's so close to God's heart. And and so we can't let it just get obscured through vague or, or ever changing terminology, but but be conscientious of how we're actually engaging that at a heart level and not not shy away because it is so complex i was thinking of you know when we talked about concept creep that the terms that clinicians and uh, physicians every month there are sheets that are updating them on the evolution of certain terminology regarding mental health for instance and and just they're and they're professionals and it's difficult for them to stay on top of the waves so how much you know more for us as just lay people, non-professionals to keep up with this shifting landscape, that can't deter us from engaging the actual issue. I think
1: you're getting right to the heart of my concern is that I am concerned and skeptical that a lot of the conversation I see regarding social justice and serving, taking care of the poor, I am concerned that it's disconnected from the actual poor. Or another way of saying that is I'm worried that there can be this tendency for It to become more about mastering academic language about the poor or even at times people assuming they speak for the poor rather than the alternative to me is an honest attempt to listen to and champion the real concerns of the poor. So one thing you may notice is that I I keep using the word poor rather than marginalized or other terms. And at least at this point, that's intentional. I think the term marginalized is also a good and helpful term, and it can help us to understand people who maybe are not economically poor, but are oppressed in some other way, and that's a very valid category. However, the reason I'm using the term poor, it's funny and peculiar to me that for all the conversation people have about socialism, everybody, and I'm going to assume you know both sides of the political spectrum in the United States, to me, it feels like everyone is overlooking the concept of social class and poverty and there's instead been a shift to identity groups. And I think it's really important to recognize, and we've covered this as um, we've done several episodes on the legacy of systemic racism and its ongoing impact on our world today. I think it's important to recognize that cycles of poverty absolutely disproportionately impact different identity groups. So in particular, we see this in the African-American community, and that is a direct tie to legacies And ongoing systemic racism. So, you know, there's a reason why you know obviously that people have focused on identity group is because you see why is it that certain identity groups are disproportionately stuck in cycles of poverty. But it's almost like we've forgotten about the cycles of poverty. But I I I actually find it's helpful to bring that back up to the surface. Um, Are we aware of who are the lowest status in our social class and who are the people who have the least amount of economic resource? And I think it's important that we recognize that that we don't lose sight of that. Even as we maybe understand how different groups are affected in different ways, we have to actually say who are the people that are the most affected by where they fit on the social rung. So marginalization, it's an important term, but it also can get slippery. And the reason why it can get slippery, and I see this happening, is are we talking about the people that are absolutely the most marginalized? Are we talking about first-generation refugees who don't know the English language and have fled an oppressive context and haven't really made any space for them? Or is it relative? Is it something where you know maybe, Mick, because of different factors in your life, you have a little bit less agency and power than I do or a little bit more? And I'm not discounting that. I think there's a place for us to look at that as well. But I worry maybe that that's where so much of the conversation has gone that are we actually aware that there are people in every community and large numbers of people that do not have access to a lot of the material resources that they need, and that's directly because of where they fit on our social status pyramid in the United States. So I, I am mainly using the word poverty and social class just because I don't hear that represented as much in this contemporary discourse, and I think it just helps to remind us that there are people who are really suffering. And of course, in the United States, that generally looks different than what we see with the abject poverty in other parts of the world, but it still is a reality here. So let me introduce a provocative statement. And that is that I believe to some extent social justice discourse has become a means of for educated people to signal their status and is often disconnected from the actual concerns of the lowest classes of our society. And I'm going to break down what I mean by that. Um, Pierre Bordeaux, who wrote this book called Distinction, A Social Critique of the Judgment of Taste, it is probably one of the nerdiest things that I've read in a long time, but I found it helpful, especially as we get to this conversation. And so let me try to break it down and, and what I took from the book. Um, He's not directly talking about this, but I believe a lot of his ideas correspond really well. And what he is saying is that in every society, there's a dominant class, and there's some group of people that sit at the top, and that's always been the case. And of course, that looks different in modern America than it did in ancient Rome, but there is still a dominant class here, even if we like to convince ourselves that that's not the case. And the dominant class is measured by the accumulation of capital. So hang with me, everyone. But what he's saying with this, and you can see this most obviously is economically, you know, so you have a dominant class. These are the people who have the most money, capital, and that's what makes them the dominant class. But Bordeaux's idea that he introduces is that capital is not just money. There's a different type of capital that is cultural. And so in this instance, it's not just how rich you are. So there could be somebody else out there that's actually richer than you, but you might have more cultural capital. And what he means by that is you understand how to fit in with the upper strata of society. You talk like they do. You're educated like they are. You're able to show up at a dinner party and feel like you belong. You might not actually have as much money as somebody else, but you fit in more because of the accumulation of cultural capital that you have. And if you were to look at this in a very broad sense, this is the difference between a humanities professor and a rich business person. The rich business person probably has a lot more money than the humanities professor does. But the humanities professor, you know, they might be the ones who get invited out to the symphony, and they might be the ones who go to other cultural events, and they feel at home at a modern art gallery. And they're the ones who, when it comes time to talk about something, their voice is highly respected and represented. And they're probably not in abject poverty, but they're also not as rich, typically, as the very wealthy business person. And both of these two groups They represent the dominant strata of our society, but they're all so different from each other. And in fact, he would say often they're in conflict with each other. Both of them have accumulated a lot of capital. Both of them want to be in charge, but the way they got there was different. For one, it was economic. For the other, it was cultural. And so there's this tug of war back and forth between those with high cultural capital and high economic capital.
0: Yeah, that's a really helpful analysis, and and I think it's been well documented now, and and not just in that incredibly nerdy book, but uh, the idea of social capital as a defining marker for true wealth in the West. And I think that's a good example, the idea of the humanities professor and the businessman, because increasingly so, that ideological capital or the academic capital is highly esteemed in our society I think especially in the shift from uh, you know as we've talked about this is from an overgeneralized you know 40,000 foot view but the shift from objective truth to more subjective truth and the the ability to navigate those waters the ability to speak that language really does uh, enable you to kind of rise to the top at least again from a from a, a standpoint of influence and acceptance and the those who don't know how to speak that language those who don't know how to play that game don't have as much as much influence in today's society. I think it's shifting to where you know, think of the late 19th century into the 20th century, the you know the Rockefellers and the Carnegies and these these other individuals who had all the you know material capital, and they really charted a course for America in particular. And that's that's no longer the case. Obviously we have we have extremely wealthy individuals who are still who still have massive influence. But I would argue that the academicians and the and the ideas people have just as much capital and influence today, at least you know, not from a material standpoint, but from this kind of this idea of influence in society.
1: Yeah. And the key point that Bordeaux would make is that both of them represent the dominant class. And so they go back and forth you know, who's in the lead and who's not. And typically when one has more influence, the other is going to try to catch up or people with a lot of intellectual capital might try to cash that in for money. And likewise, people with a lot of economic capital will spend that money on sending their kids to elite colleges. So they're both trying to get both, but some are more rich than another. And so, you know, if you're having a hard time still wrapping your head around this, think the difference between, you know, uh, I'm you know we live in the middle of Texas, so I'm picturing a successful entrepreneur who owns their own business has a lake house and a boat you know that's somebody who has a good amount of economic capital and then I think of a professor who's a blue check mark on Twitter and people pay a lot of attention to what they say and they get quoted a lot you know both of them actually have a lot of capital but it's really different in how that capital gets expressed so let me tell you how far Bordeaux is gonna take this and this might hurt your head a little bit uh, but he would actually say things like manners morals A lot of this is driven by the people who have the most intellectual capital in a society. So if you could picture a society as a pyramid, the people at the top don't have manners. They are manners, meaning they have so mastered a particular way of living that was inherited both in their education, their family, that's probably been accumulated. Just like money gets accumulated over the course of generations, this cultural capital has been accumulated over the course of generations where they don't even have to think about it. It's just naturally the way that they are is the manners for the rest of society. So the problem for that is anybody else who wants to move up the social ladder, they're never going to get there because they're never going to be that person. That person has absolutely accumulated enough social capital in a way that you or I couldn't. And so this is the problem you run into with a person who grew up blue collar, but they they get rich, you know, and, and however that happened, and then maybe they buy a house in a nicer neighborhood, but they never quite fit in. You know, their kids might or their grandkids might. And, you know, we're blessed to live in the United States where this happens a lot more in America than it has historically happened in any other culture or society. So there is a path forward, for social mobility here in the United States in a way that there's not in most other countries. But even here in America, I don't think we think about this maybe quite enough. Just to what extent, if you are lucky enough to be one of, the, one of the people who've inherited a lot of capital, whether it's intellectual or economic, how much of an advantage you might have over somebody who hasn't. So that can inform any number of conversations. But let's shift the corner of how is this relevant to social justice discourse? What Bordeaux would say is in this ongoing tension between people with lots of economic capital and people with a lot of cultural capital, at times, those with high amounts of cultural capital will side with what he calls the dominated classes, meaning blue collar workers, people like that, where they'll kind of paint this picture of are all being oppressed by the rich people. And in his mind, that's actually very confusing because those two groups are different. And so what's happening is is those with a lot of cultural power are trying to enlist this army of people to support them, not for the sake of the poor, but actually for their sake and their own social mobility. And so they're reorienting the concerns of the poor as part of their quest to achieve more capital
0: and more dominance in society. So maybe, maybe as we kind of come over the, the crest of this episode, and you're talking obviously at a high academic level, referencing this incredibly nerdy book that you've read. So start to bring this down to street level, where where would we see, you know, these ideas of kind of this cultural or social capital and the the theme of today's episode with these discourses around social justice in particular, where does this start to intersect our lives in a practical sense? So let me let me
1: use myself as an example. I grew up middle to upper middle class university educated, and good university, things like that. So I have a, I have a, I don't have a lot of economic capital. That's the downside of working in a church. But when it comes to cultural capital, I was raised with that. And there's a lot of things that I've never had to stop and think about because from my very earliest age, I was brought up in such a way that allows me to have access to that strata of society. So even for me, I don't make a lot of money but it's very different from somebody else who maybe has the same income for me, but does not have nearly the same amount of cultural opportunities that I've had. And so what Bordeaux's talking about is and um, the theme of his book is taste. And so he he's even saying like you might think of the movies you like, the music you listen to, the art you enjoy, as just being something that comes from inside of you. He would actually say that was something that a taste that was developed in you. Based upon both your culture, but also on your social positioning of why you would do that sort of thing. So, you know, like we'll own it maybe for an old millennial, uh, my taste in coffee, if I enjoy craft coffee, if I tend to read things like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or the Atlantic, if I like to eat organic food or healthier food options, like these are all little things that are a part of someone's life that I'm probably not consciously aware of, but I'm, I'm signaling where I might fit in social status in our society uh, versus somebody else who they're always drinking gas station coffee. Or, you know, you could kind of go down the list of what they might do that's different, that is more reflective of a different group within society. And everybody's idiosyncrasies, you know, so there, we all have little things that are different. But if you actually pause and think, you, you would, I would imagine for most of us realize that in your social circle, a lot of these t- taste type issues are pretty similar based on, on who you are and where you fit in. That's one thing if we're talking about art or food, but I want to pull it back into what we're talking about today, and that's the language of social justice. I wish I could attribute this article. I read one months ago, and I could not find it. So, so this is my sad attempt to cite this. So what this question this author was asking is, who benefits from social justice discourse? Is it the poor? And you can make the argument, and, and again, I, I want to be nuanced here. I think you could make the argument that there is benefit. But what this author's point is that in order to be fluent in social justice discourse, you need to have been educated, not just at a college, but at an elite college. And if you actually look, the more close to Ivy League research institution that you are, the more naturally fluent you are going to be with this type of language. And because it's evolving so quickly, not only do you need to be fluent in this language, but you need to have enough leisure time to be on the internet and to be on top of how that language is changing. And Mick, you mentioned earlier about you know in the medical field where things are constantly being updated and changed and so you know what you need to have is you need to have enough margin time if you want to stay current and you want to be seen as a leader within your field you need to have enough margin time to stay on top of all of that and if you don't you're going to fall behind and you're going to be moved down the rung right so if we get into this idea of social mobility that's where this intersects so in other words if i want to move up the ladder of intellectual and cultural capital in the united states I, at this point in time, I believe I would actually need to be mastering social justice language in order to do that. So think of how backwards that is. If I want to be socially mobile and increase my power and my cultural capital, the way that I do that is by mastering language about the poor. And to me, that's just a really sad type of appropriation. Like I'm taking the concerns, the pain of the poor, and it becomes a tool for self-advancement. And I am not saying that people are consciously doing that, and I'm also not saying that's the only reason why people are doing that. I think most people – and I want to be really generous here. I think there's a lot of people who deeply do care about the poor and about justice, and this is just the way that they know to express it. Um, But maybe my gentle pushback or critique here would be, is this way actually helpful and who's benefiting from it? Because the people who actually are poor and oppressed in our society don't have the time or the access to the education to master this language. So there is a language about them that they're not able to participate in. And right out the gate, that's really concerning to me. Because I think if we actually want to represent the concern for the poor, the way that we do that first and foremost is we listen to the poor. And that's probably going to be less sophisticated speech. And I understand the irony of having a podcast like ours where we use a lot of big words and I'm saying this, but... Part of why I do this in a podcast, and I don't do this in church settings or in most other settings where I'm a part of, is because I think the majority of life, we need to be using plain speech with plain people. We need to be able to articulate concepts. And it's fine you know, to have a research paper where you use some big words or a podcast maybe to use some of those big words. But if we allow our ability to master language to be the scorecard by which we understand how we're doing and caring for the poor, right out the gate, we have a tremendous problem and I, and I think we could actually tempt ourselves into thinking that we're doing a lot of work in caring for the poor, but in reality, we've mastered language about the poor, and we might realize down the road that we've never actually listened to the poor themselves and what their concerns really are.
0: Yeah, and I would add that we also need to pay attention to the assumptions that um, just well-meaning attempts at caring for the poor or addressing the needs of the poor also need to take into account the assumptions regarding the, the state of the poor or of the marginalized. And I'm thinking back to efforts that began in the late 18th century that materialized in the you know in the 19th century and, and led to a lot of bloodshed in the 20th century because of the, the mistaken nature of the assumptions regarding human nature and, and we've done some podcasts on this in the past, so I'm not going to belabor this. but uh, so it's not just the gap between the education level and then the street level, advocacy, but also the assumptions that are embedded in some of that academic work. And we need to be students of history and, and take note of what has been advantageous. And, and really, you know, this is obviously, um, I'm biased, but I think a lot of academic work has been done on this to attribute the actual advocacy that has brought about positive and lasting change has, has come out of the church, out of the Judeo-Christian tradition, and I think we would be wise today to assess and evaluate not just the claims, but be students of history and look back at the actual uh, fruit of the various efforts that have gone into alleviating the pain of the poor. Yeah, let's,
1: let us let me use a real example, because I realize this episode is way in the clouds conceptually. So one one that's real to me is this whole issue of homelessness. I've seen multiple studies. I don't have the current statistics, but I had a friend who did a big research project on this about 20 years ago in our city. And it was looking at both the visible and the invisible homeless. And so on the one hand, most people, when they think of homelessness, they're thinking of people either living in tents or asking for money on the side of the road. And that is a form of this. But at at that point in time, when my friend did this survey, for every one person who was living on the streets, there was about 15 to 20 more people who did not have access to shelter. And what you tend to see is the people living on the streets are disproportionately male and seldom are their children. But if you actually look at like the numbers of people who don't have access to shelter, a large percentage of them are, are kids, are single parents, people like that who you're probably not ever going to see on the side of the road. So what concerns me is there's this whole discourse, and now it's even gotten wrapped up into political policies about homelessness or unhoused or whatever word you want to use. And on one side, I don't care too much about the language. What I do care about is are we connected enough to people who actually are poor And are insecure, at least when it comes to their shelter, to know what their real concerns are. And a lot of times I see some of these debates, and I'm certainly no expert, but I at least have had enough relationship to realize that what's missing from this whole conversation is what about, you know, for every one person on the street, what about the 20 more who are bouncing around cheap motels, crashing on people's couches? What about the, I believe it's more than 1,000 students just in our city, in our school district, it's more than 1,000 out of 15,000 students who are homeless And you don't see any of them on the side of the road. But you have kids that are trying to get educated that don't even have access to a stable place to live. Like, how on earth are they supposed to have a a good education and eventually be able to work their way up the social ladder if they don't have access to housing? And, you know, we have friends that do incredible work in this regard. But these are the types of things that get overlooked because it's not part of this conversation that's going on on Twitter. It's the stuff that, on a lot of these concerns, I'm not sure that either political party is going to champion it or, you know, or maybe. Maybe there would be an opportunity of both political ideologies to take a stab at it. Like that's So we we can just reduce these conversations so quickly, and what we allow is this this conversation, this discourse that's going on to shape our perspective, and we end up missing whole segments of the population of people that are suffering. Um, In this book that I read, one of the things he talked about was opinion surveys, and I thought this was really interesting. And and what he said was the problem with opinion surveys is – Who is the person crafting the question? And so if I am a person with a master's degree and I uh, originate in the upper middle class and I form an opinion survey, the way that I write that survey is going to be in support of the values that I carry as a person in my social status. And so then I can go survey a bunch of people that represent the, the lower statuses of society, and they might check yes or they might check no. And what he's talking about is don't do that. That's actually not a a good representation of what the poor really need or want. A much better way would be to go with a blank sheet of paper, get to know people, and say, what questions should we be asking? What concerns do you have? And don't presuppose or superimpose our concerns of people who have a lot of high cultural capital upon the poor, but instead let them share their concerns with us. What's your vantage point? And then how do we champion you? What are the things that you would like to say? And I think regardless, and I would actually challenge um, whatever side of the political spectrum you follow on, I I think what you're going to discover really fast is if you do that, you're going to find yourself being challenged, and maybe some of your beliefs are going to get challenged And when we actually take the time to live in relationship with the poor and listen to them. It doesn't mean we need to agree with everything, and it doesn't mean that everything that, um, you know, if we're in community with people who are in poverty, it doesn't mean that we have to agree with whatever they say or that whatever they say is right. But I think what it does mean is, as believers, we need to be in relationship, value people for who they are as equals in the Imago Day, the image of God, just like we are, and take the time to humbly listen to them and get in their world. And I found when I do that, that's where we work things out, and that's the incredible opportunity we have as the church, because there are things that as long as this social justice discourse is out there—and and I'll just say, I think the whole thing is at some point it's going to get exposed and come crashing down— because the bigger disconnect there is between those who are actually poor and the people talking about the poor, that's untenable in the long run. And, and if the people that are championing this are the people in the Ivy League, in elite institutions in American society, that doesn't work very well um, if they're the ones talking about the poor, but it's not representative of the poor themselves. And so at some point, that's going to get exposed. And I have a lot of friends who do work in different parts of the country, in inner city ministry, and there's a growing discontentment because people are starting to see through this. They're starting to recognize that a lot of people are talking about the poor, um, but they're doing it absent relationship or letting the poor speak for themselves. And I I think there's going to be, at some point, some type of breaking point where that's going to have to get resorted. But I look at all that, and I think this is where the church shines, because we can do relationship, get in people's world, understand their real concerns, and maybe not on some grand national level, but at least with the influence that we have, partner with them in the areas that they believe are important. And at times, that could turn
0: into something that extends beyond just our our little footprint. So may we be, as the body of Christ, may we be stirred with God's heart for the poor. May we engage at every level of the, not just the conversation, but that uh, and being part of the answer, part of the solution. And thanks so much for tuning in and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Today, we're going to look at performative... Or, today, we're going to have a bit of a discourse on... Or how would you say... How would...
1: <laughs> I can't get out. can't even get out the title.
0: <laughs> how would we say this? How would you say it?
1: This is my attempt at some type of attribution, attribution. And this is my attempt at some type of attribution. I can't say that word. Yeah, attribution. Attribution. And so this is my attempt at some type of attribution. Thank <laughs> you.